0: you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. As we've been working our way through Luke, and especially in these last weeks, Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, we've seen Jesus lay out for us what life in His kingdom should look like. We've seen how He expects us to live as His disciples. This morning we see that He literally gets to the heart of the matter the matter of so much of the Christian life when he teaches on sin. And in this section there are many famous verses, but rather than just hearing and nodding and saying, yeah, we've heard that before, the question is do we understand what these verses are actually teaching us and are we seeking to live according to them? So I invite you to follow along this morning as we begin reading at verse 36 of Luke chapter 6. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. "'Judge not, and you will not be judged. "'Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. "'Forgive, and you will be forgiven. "'Give, and it will be given to you. "'Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, "'running over, will be put into your lap. "'For the measure, with the measure you use, "'it will be measured to you.'" He also told them a parable. "'Can a blind man lead a blind man? "'Will they not both fall into the pit?' bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. May God bless the reading of his word. The New Testament is often clear as Jesus is here that we are many times blinded by our own sin, a sin that is a part of our own lives. It is very easy to see the sin in others, but not so easy to see the sin in ourselves. And yet Jesus says that as his disciples, as people who live and serve in his kingdom, we must be able to see our own sin and deal with our own sin. And so that's what we see this morning. Jesus is teaching his people how to respond to sin. He gives us five directions for dealing with it. First, we need to remember God's mercy. We need to remember God's mercy. Here at the beginning of our relationship with God is where many of us continually are tempted to go off the rails. We forget what we have already been given by God. Yet here Jesus wants us to remember that our Father is merciful. If you're one of Jesus' disciples, then God is your father and you have received mercy from your father. In Romans 9, Paul says that God's people are in fact vessels for mercy. And Pastor John Piper helps explain what that means and to put things in perspective for how we live our life and how we think about sin. He says this, as God's people, as Christians, you were called out of spiritual darkness and deadness by mercy Through mercy and for mercy. By mercy because in our rebellion we didn't deserve to be awakened and opened and subdued by God. Through mercy because every influence that worked on us to bring us to Christ was a mercy from God. For mercy because every enjoyment that we will ever have forever and ever will be a merciful enjoyment. And mercy itself will be supremely pleasant to taste and know. We are vessels of mercy, which means that in all our thinking about election and why we are saved and another not, we must continually focus on this. We do not deserve to be Christians. We do not deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed or heaven bound. It is all mercy undeserved. Oh, may that believers hear this as humbling and unbelievers hear it as hopeful Nothing in us was the decisive influence on God to make it happen. That we have received anything good, any forgiveness, any acceptance with God, any glimpse of His glory, any hope of everlasting joy, this is all mercy. That is what it means that God the Father has been merciful to us and that mercy has come to us through Jesus Christ, through His ministry for us. Abraham Lincoln was famously assassinated, and yet he didn't see it coming. He didn't know it was going to happen. JFK was famously, even infamously, assassinated, and he did not see it coming. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and he didn't see it coming. All of these people did not know that their death was imminent, or else they would have more than likely changed their plans. Lincoln would not have gone to the theater Kennedy would have traveled in an armored vehicle. Martin Luther King Jr. would not have stepped out onto that balcony but remained in the safety of his hotel room. So many others have not seen death coming and yet have died, but that is not true of Jesus. Jesus was not murdered. Jesus was not assassinated. But with great clarity, he saw his death coming. He told his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. And when we turn to the end of the Gospels, guess what we see? We see Jesus going up to Jerusalem. We see him being delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. We see that he is condemned by them to death. And he is delivered over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, where he is mocked and flogged and crucified. And we see him rising again on the third day. You see, Jesus died as an act of mercy for his people. He did not die as an accident. He did not die as a good person or a martyr. He died as a sacrifice and he went willingly to it. Why? That he might offer himself up for the atonement of his people's sins. God did not need to extend forgiveness to us and yet in his mercy he does. And he does it through the offering of his own son who bears God's wrath against our sin on the cross. And yet God brings him back to life again. Now, why is it important to start there? Why is it important to begin with those gospel mercies that come to us? Why do we begin here as we think about dealing with sin? It's for this reason, remembering the gospel mercies of God to us in Christ makes us bold with sin. Now, what does that mean? Well, first, it makes us bold in our understanding of sin. It allows us to see the... the, as the Puritans used to call, the sinfulness of sin. We get to see just how horrible it is. We get to see just how terrible it is, just how offensive it is to God. But we are also bold in our determination then to kill it in our lives knowing that it is not the act of seeking to be right with God by our good works that actually frees us up for good works. Because our life is not justified before God because of our pursuit of righteousness, we are free to boldly and bravely pursue righteousness. Because our life, our relationship with God is already based on His mercy, We do not need to tremble and fear and toil wondering, might I one day make it? If you trust in Christ, then you are promised to make it because salvation does not depend upon us. And so we, when we see sin, we can be like David in Psalm 51 and throw ourselves in the mercy of God and not hide from our sin, not be tempted to make light of our sin and say, well, God, it, it really isn't that bad, but can you please forgive me? No, we can say, God, I have sinned grievously. I have sinned heinously. I, I deserve death and judgment. But God, you've given that to Christ instead. Therefore, forgive me and help me to look to your mercy continually that I might put sin to death in my life. As Jesus' disciples, this is the starting place for how we we look at sin, how we respond to sin. It begins by remembering who we are in Christ, by remembering God's mercy. But secondly, as Jesus' disciples, as we respond to sin, we must rethink our attitude You should rethink your attitude. Look at the principle of verse 38. Jesus said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Now, what is this idea of good measuring, of pressing down, of shaking together? All of these things uh, are probably unfamiliar to us because we don't live in the same kind of market-driven society that Jesus did. And by that, I mean a literal market. We have a stock market, but uh, but we don't typically go to an open market where we get grains and corns, and we go home and we grind them down into flour for bread and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, that's all pre-made, and we pick it up at Meijer, Kroger, or Walmart. Okay, Maybe we go to a farmer's market and, and get fresh fruit, but that's not what's going on here. Okay, To get some idea of what's going on here, think about the last time that you bought a bag of potato chips. You get that family size and think, this will be great. So we'll have this for a community group. This will be enough to feed everybody. And, and you open that thing up and what, what do you find? Half of it's air. You're thinking, dude, who stole my chips? What did I pay 350 for this for? Half of it's air. Likewise, in Jesus' day, when you went to go and buy things, it was not always measured by weight, but sometimes volume, specifically corn. So you would take your, your container, that, that that was the the designated amounts uh, a, a kind of earthen vessel and what you wanted first of all was a good measure you didn't want the guy to just kind of dip his ladle into the corn and drop some in there and say there you go you say no 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 give me a good measure dip that thing in there as deep as it'll go and pour that thing in there and then you didn't just walk away if it was had a little mound on the top no 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 first of all you 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 would begin to sift it you would begin to shake it you would twist it like this so that all of that corn would begin to settle and then you would you would bang it on something maybe it was your leg or maybe it was uh, the back of your donkey or whatever it was, but you'd bang that thing down, you would shake it, you would press it down, and then you would say, top me off. Because you're not paying by weight, you're paying for the whatever amount you can get into that container. And so Jesus is saying, look, you have you have received that kind of overflowing, super abundant mercy from God, and um, therefore that is the principle by which you should show mercy to others, He's saying when you see some sin in someone's life, what you should do is not immediately jump on it. Rather, you should remember this principle of good measure. Don't just pour out a little bit of mercy, a little bit of love, as if you're seeking to check it off a list or, or, or put on a good show. Pour out mercy like you mean it. Press it down. Shake it out until it's running over in the lap of the person you're giving it to. Why? Because Jesus says if you treat people that way, that's how he will treat you. Now, frankly, that's astonishing to think about. If you treat people that way, that's how God will treat you. But what does that mean practically? Does that, is that, does that mean it's an absolute saying? That to the degree that I love and forgive and am merciful, then God will be loving and forgiving and merciful to me and therefore will, will allow me to be saved? Does it mean that if I am generous and abundant with people that God will automatically be generous and abundant to me? The answer to that is no. And we see throughout Jesus' own teaching, but especially the whole Bible, that just doesn't hold up. Jesus is speaking as a teacher of wisdom now, saying this is the generally true principle in God's world and the way that it works. Our relationship with God, the Father, is like any child with a father. If my children are obedient to me, if my children are loving and kind towards me and to their siblings, and especially to their mother, guess what? I want to be kind and loving and generous to them. It it produces within me the desire to treat them well when I see them treating others well. But does that mean that I don't treat them well if they don't treat others well? No, frankly, I'm probably too kind and too merciful and too loving if such a thing is possible for a father to be. Our Heavenly Father is certainly that way. We've just seen it by Him giving us salvation in Christ, something that we don't deserve, can never earn. Nevertheless, the principle holds true, just as we seek to be merciful and to show it in good measure towards others, it provokes within God the pride of a father who wants to go above and beyond and give good measure of mercy and love to His children as well. Now this has implications not only for how we think about our relationship to God, but to others as well. And what Jesus says really cuts across the grain of most of our modern thinking. So let me just say this morning that if you have, if you have uh, drunk deeply at the well of, of cultural thought, when it comes to things like making judgments and offering forgiveness, then take heart. This sermon is for you. Jesus has something to say about that, and spoilers, he disagrees with our culture. Okay? What does he say? As we seek to rethink our attitude towards others in light of this principle of good measure, first we need to rethink judgment and condemnation. We need to rethink judgment and condemnation. Jesus says, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now, on what level, what can I say? That's probably the most quoted verse in America, isn't it? Oftentimes when a person tries to say that another person is wrong in their actions or, or in their thinking, what comes out is, Judge not lest ye be judged. The good King James Version. Even if the verse isn't quoted directly, one of the worst offenses in our culture is this, you can do just about anything, but don't you dare tell someone they're wrong. Don't you dare seek to judge someone else for their life. The common thought is nobody has the right to judge anybody else. And isn't that, after all, what Jesus is saying here? No, it's not what he's saying at all. He, he can't be saying that because elsewhere Jesus himself talks about making judgments. Jesus himself makes judgments of others. He looks to the Pharisees and calls them a brood of vipers. I think that's a judgment. I, I think he's making a determination about what kind of teachers they are. If you read Jude 5, you see there was, in fact, Jesus who poured out the judgments on Egypt that we read about in Psalm 105 at the beginning of our time together. So Jesus is not saying, don't ever judge someone else. But what he is saying is this, do not have a judgmental attitude. Now, what's the difference A judgmental attitude is marked by undue harshness towards others that often comes from believing we are right in everything. Did you catch that? Judgmentalism or a judgmental attitude is undue harshness towards others that often comes from believing that we are right in everything. So it's the kind of negative attitude that doesn't just look at actions, but also assumes motives on the person doing that action as well. And they're almost always negative motives. So somebody does something, you think, why were they doing that towards me? Don't they know how offensive that is? Well, frankly, you're probably not that important to know they weren't thinking about you. Okay, And it's a sign of judgmentalism that we would we would guess to be able to get in somebody's mind and immediately discern motives to their actions. Judgmentalism assumes the worst in people and springs from an attitude of self-righteousness. It condemns the individuals before all the facts are known. And that's what Jesus says don't do. Because if you live that way towards others, then they're going to live that way towards you. You, you. you don't want to go around with an attitude of condemnation all the time. Because if that's the, if that's the image that you project, guess what's going to happen? People are going to have that attitude with you as well. So we rethink judgment and condemnation. We also rethink forgiveness and generosity. We rethink forgiveness and generosity. Positively, Jesus says, Forgive and you'll be forgiven, give and it will be given to you. It's almost the the opposite handmaiden of what he's just said. More than just withholding negative judgment and condemnation, we should be active in showing good towards others. Namely, we should be quick to offer forgiveness and show generosity towards others, even those that don't deserve it. And again, what is the principle there? Good measure has been given to us by God. Therefore, we should extend good measure to others. Now, again, forgiveness is one of those incredibly misunderstood concepts in culture. We have this idea that forgive and forget means we literally act like it didn't happen. We just move on as if, as if no offense took place, that our forgiveness is absolute and unconditional. And the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. If your business partner embezzles money, you should forgive him. And you should never let him near the books again. Sin has consequences. If your friend shares something that you shared with them in confidence with the whole world through Facebook or Twitter, you should forgive them. But you should never share anything with them again. There is wisdom in knowing someone's character and what may or may not be a chronic problem. If someone vandalizes your car, you should forgive them. But you should also let them pay the fine and possibly even the jail time. Why? Because God doesn't say in His forgiveness, no consequences. We just saw it. There were steep and heavy consequences to our sin, namely the death of Christ. And yet God forgives us. Likewise for us, forgiveness does not mean just a blank check to say, "Yeah, oh, fine, do, do whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. It does matter. But there's a difference between allowing the fruit of someone's behavior to be realized and forgiving them, not holding it against them anymore. Forgiveness is about letting go of feelings of anger or hatred towards a person. It's about not holding their actions against them in the context of a relationship. I think probably one of the, the most Christian and striking examples of this that I've ever seen came years ago. And we were watching a clip from a PBS show about um, Angola uh, Federal uh, Maximum Security Prison or, or whatever it is. It's in Angola and it's a really bad place to be. Uh, only the people that have life sentences go to this place because they've committed violent, violent crimes. And the gospel penetrated Angola Prison. And prisoners started getting saved. And they invited one of our seminaries, New Orleans uh, Baptist Theological Seminary, into Angola to to do classes. And you had guys that had committed murder who were gloriously saved, were taking classes to learn how to read and understand and preach the Bible to fellow inmates and even experience transfer as missionaries to other maximum security prisons. But down to the last man, you know what they all said? I I deserve to be in here for what I did. I know I have forgiveness with God, but there are consequences, even temporally, to my sin. There are consequences in this life to my actions. And my only hope is I can make use of the time that I have here by serving God. That's a profoundly Christian way to think about sin. To those who, quote-unquote, find religion and then expect release, I have serious doubts about their conversion. Jesus says that his disciples should be marked by the kind of life that is quick to forgive, just as God forgave us. And the reality is that, again, it's 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 the kind of wisdom speak as in Proverbs. It's not immutable, immutable law, but the general observation of, of how things work in God's universe is this. If you are a forgiving person, others will want to forgive you. If you're not a forgiving person, no one wants to be around you. Along with this is a kind of giving attitude that we talked about last week, a spirit of generosity that is willing and ready with open hands to give with no strings attached. As, As Christians, that's the kind of good measure that we could seek to be pouring out with someone. So someone gets in a bind and they say, you know, I, I, uh, I've got lots of bills and I've not been the best with my finances. Uh, I've, I've, I've had a setback at my job and I really just need $50 for groceries to, to, to get me through the rest of this week. What should we do as Christians? Should we give them the $50? No, we should give them $150. We should we should give them two hundred dollars. We, we we should say I don't have cash, but you know what? I I will cook for you meals for the next two weeks, and you can freeze them and reheat them. I will uh, I will pick you up and take you to work, so that way you don't spend gas money. Whatever it is that we can do, the point is we don't just take the scoop and drop it in the bucket. We say no no good measure shaken out, pressed down, overflowing. That is the kind of spirit of forgiveness and generosity that Jesus is calling to. A spirit that is antithetical to one that is that is steeped in judgmentalism and condemnation, always finding fault with others, but never with ourselves. Jesus says when we encounter sin, that is how his disciples should respond. Third, third, when we encounter sin, we should follow our Savior. We should follow our Savior. Luke says he also told them a parable in this sermon. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, Jesus is great at giving word pictures, isn't he? I know the words are familiar, but stop and actually think about what Jesus is saying here in this illustration. Uh, whenever I read this, it, it's, not, it's not the same, but uh, it's still funny in my mind and it stuck with me. And so when, when I hear the blind leading the blind, I actually think about uh, the blind leading the deaf because of an old Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor movie that I saw way back uh, on some Saturday afternoon. One was deaf, one was blind. They kind of knew each other and they had both witnessed in their own way a crime that had taken place. And the criminals were then after them. And so they, it was kind of a, a very odd Bosom Buddies movie as they're trying to escape from these criminals that want to do them in. And at one point they've been tied up and they've managed to, to get released, but they can't get to each other. So they're trying to navigate through one blind, one deaf through this building. And so uh, so the blind guy is yelling to the deaf guy uh, as loud as he can. He says, stomp your feet really loud when you walk so I can hear the footsteps and follow you out. And so, so, so they're both still handcuffed, and the one guy is stomping as loud as he can uh, through the, through this place. He can't hear anything, and he yells back, "I feel like an idiot!" And the blind guy says, "You look just fine to me." And there they go on out the door. It, it, now you know why it sticks in my mind. Jesus presents something even more absurd. He, he, he presents to us this, this blind man uh, groping around in the dark, unable to find his way. And he says, hey, can anyone help me out there? Can anyone help me? Another man says, sure, I'll, I'll help you. I'll guide you. But he too is blind. So here they both are, both both groping around. and They finally find each other. The guy says, sure, sure, come on, I'll help you. And he's still walking around as well, completely unable to know where in the world he's going, leaving this other blind man. Jesus says, what's going to happen to those guys? They're both going to fall into the pit utter disaster and this is not like pit like you know it's not really a good word it's not a good translation it's i think of like the, the ditch on the side of the road this is like grand canyon i mean they're, they're, that's that's the word picture there it's they're not going to bust an ankle they're going to bust their head if they go over it's it's imminent doom and absolute disaster now what is jesus talking about here well he's talking about this simple principle be careful who you follow Be careful who you follow. On one level, Jesus is surely condemning the Pharisees, who he elsewhere called blind guides. But remember that Jesus here, his words are aimed at his disciples. So he's not just looking out there and saying, yeah, look at those bad guys out there. No, no, what he is saying is he's putting the burden on us. He's putting the burden on his disciples. And he's saying here, we need, you need, if you're going to be my disciples, you need to evaluate who You're following after. You need to evaluate what kind of leadership you have in your life. Why? He says, verse 40, because a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. He says, whoever your teacher is, whoever it is you're following, whoever it is you're learning from, you are being molded into their image. So you'd better get it right. You'd better get it right what kind of teacher you're following after. Now, let me just take a minute and probably step on some toes, including my own. Let me take a page out of the book that Carnegie didn't write, How to Lose Friends and Anger People. Okay? But as we seek to apply this to our lives in more than just general ways, and specific ways, sometimes this is what we have to do. We have to take the lumps. And as Votie Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, then say ouch. The reality is in this country that most Christians politically line up with a conservative political party. And frankly, more than half of America lines up with a conservative political party in all the polls. The problem is there is now a media empire that that is driven by this conservative political attitude. And the reality is this, most of us would benefit immensely from turning off their radio programs and their 24-hour news cycles. Most of us would do well and benefit spiritually from stopping to listen to all that. You say, "Well, well, why is that the case? A couple of reasons. First of all, those people are not simply reporting the news, they are commenting on the news, and most of them are not Christians. They may be driven by conservative political ideas and they may even have some good things to say, but fundamentally their worldview is not that of a Christian. That comes not only from what they themselves say about their faith, but also in the things they say that directly affect their faith. It simply does not line up with the Bible. And so day in and day out, you are being trained to think with political conservative political savvy, but not with the mind of Christ. Turn the things off. Secondly, and this goes largely hand in hand with the first, many of those commentators are driven by anger and indignation. I mean, you you turn on the radio and you listen to their commentary and there is constant yelling. There is a building up of emotion. That that, And why do they do that? Because they want you to get angry. They want you to get indignant. And turn in tomorrow to see what can we be indignant about together. It is driven by ratings and misplaced priorities in life. As not just a Christian, but as a Christian. But not just as a Christian. As a citizen of this country, I'm not entirely happy. I'm less than thrilled. I'm very against many of the things that our current politicians are doing. But if that's all I worried about every day, hours on end, got worked up and angry about what is going on in Washington, D.C., you know what would happen? Corruption of my soul. I don't want to be a person driven by angry politics. I want to be a person driven by the love of God. Because that's the most important and fundamental relationship I can possibly have. And yes, when I'm driven by the love of God, when I'm driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that will affect how I think and how I live and how I vote. But I'm not going to invest my time following blind guides down a blind alley. Jesus does not want us upset and mad all the time. It's not good for your blood pressure and it's not good for your soul. Some of us, frankly, spend far more time listening to those kinds of commentators and pundits than we ever think about listening to Christ through his word. Like I said, if you can't say amen, say ouch. But hours upon hours upon hours are often given over to those people and we are being molded into those image when Christ says, be careful of your teacher. Be careful who you follow. Whether it is the pure reading of the word or listening to it read through any kind of iDevice and and DVD and CD or whether it is queuing up good expositors of God's word and letting them help you to understand what it says, our life should be driven by following after Jesus. It should be driven by knowing His Word and seeking to understand it and be shaped by it. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? We might say this, what good does it gain a man to gain, uh, what does it profit a man to gain political awareness but lose his intimacy with God? Let me just put the final nail in my coffin. Are you being conformed into the image of Rush or into the image of Jesus. That's what it comes down to in many ways. Who is your teacher? If you want to deal with your sin, if you want to grow in godliness, if you want to live like a disciple of Jesus Christ, then follow after Him. Listen to Him. Be around Him. Hear Him through His Word. The best saints, shepherds, teachers, and preachers will always be those that point you not to themselves, but to Jesus Himself. So don't be led by a blind guy. Let, the, let yourself be led by the one true guide. Be taught by the master teacher. Be shaped by the perfect example. Reflect the glory of your Savior, Jesus. Jesus has warned his disciples, even us today, about the presence of sin in our life and in the world. He's warned us about the danger of being quick on the draw when it comes to making judgments about other people and condemning them too quickly because of their sin. He's warned us about sinfully giving into the cult of personality. He's warned us about following the wrong people as spiritual leaders instead of following him, the one true leader. He's reminded us to begin thinking about sin by remembering God's mercy. But at some point, we actually need to deal with sin. And that's the fourth thing that we see. We must deal with sin. Jesus, the wordsmith, gives us another great illustration in these verses. One of my favorites, in fact. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. How do we deal with sin? First, we deal with our own sin. We deal with our own sin. Jesus gives us this ludicrous illustration of these verses. Not ludicrous because it's wrong, but ludicrous because of the illustration that it puts into our mind. Again, think about what he is saying here. He imagines, he imagines someone standing here looking in the back row and saying, hey, I see, I see that speck of sawdust back there. Let me get that for you. And on the way, he's got one of these support structures sticking out of his eye. I mean, is it if you actually saw it in a cartoon or saw it on a movie, would you not be like, well, "What's that about?" Right? I mean, can, can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, seeing someone who was uh, a heart surgeon that 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 probably weighed 450 pounds, had clearly plaque eating himself up, maybe even had a gunshot wound to the chest, and said, "Okay, <gasps> I'm here to do your surgery." I mean, you'd be like, "No thanks. Go take care of yourself first, and then come and work on my heart." Right? Jesus is saying here, it is is incredibly hypocritical for you to have this big glaring sin that you can't see and yet think you're going to be able to help somebody else with their sin. He says, first deal with your own sin. I think it was Jerry Bridges who said, we ought to be the worst sinners we know. What does that mean? That means that we should be far more concerned about our own sin than anybody else's sin in the world. We should be far more interested in in dealing with our sin before we're ever thinking about dealing in other people's sin. We should be cultivating godliness in our own hearts before we think about confronting others about their lack of godliness. Again, hypocrisy is hanging on to some obvious sin when everyone else can see it but us. And when it even gets so close to our field of vision that we begin making excuses and rationalizing it away. Jesus says we need to get our own life in order before we can ever help others. The question is simple: this. Are we dealing with our sin? Are we dealing with our sin? Are we allowing God to convict us of our sin, repenting of our sin, and seeking to live differently before him? It's only when we deal with our own sin that then we can next deal with other sin, that we can deal with other sin. Many, I think, believe that Jesus is saying here something like we should just mind our own business. But that doesn't fit with the rest of the New Testament. It doesn't even fit with the verses that Jesus gives us here. Verse 42, first take the log out of your own eye, and then why? You will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's. Jesus intends for us to help our brother get that speck out of his eye. The problem is we just need to do work on ourself first. And that doesn't mean that we're perfect in every area of life. Otherwise, guess what? Nobody's picking specks. Nobody is. The point is, get rid of that obvious and glaring sin, deal with it, work on it, at the very least acknowledge it, and then you'll be ready to help somebody else deal with their sin. If you've never, if you've never discovered what a lifestyle of repentance is, how are you gonna lead somebody else to do it? If you don't know what it means to pursue godliness, how are you gonna, how are you gonna help somebody else get on that path? You can't. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's. So how do we go about doing this? How do we go about helping, once we've dealt with our sin, helping someone else? Well, first of all, remember there are degrees of sin. There are degrees of sin. Now, in one sense, all sin is equal in that it is so offensive, only the blood of Christ can cover it, and only hell is sufficient to punish it. Nevertheless, within the Bible itself, we see that some sins are worse than others in terms of their depravity and their effects. God can say that he hates sin, but he can also say that others are abominations to him. In other words, the worst of the worst. So what's my point? My point is don't be nitpicky. Not every sin needs to be dealt with by you. Not every sin needs to be pointed out by you. I don't talk... To someone about substance abuse, the same way I would talk to them about other things in their life. Secondly, we need to help people see the speck in their eye, and we do that, practically speaking, by thinking about the illustration that Jesus uses here. If you're helping someone with their sin, and he uses the analogy of pulling out a speck, a grain of sawdust in their eye, how would you go about doing that? you saw someone with a piece of sawdust in your eye, would you say, here, I'll get that, and reach in and start digging around and yank it out? If so, don't ever come near me to get sawdust out of my eye. Okay? Uh, my, my, when I was growing up, my dad can never, still can't be in the room when I'm putting or taking out my contacts. He says, eyeballs gross me out, John. That's what he tells me. It's it just, it's so sensitive. That's right, I got an email on that one. It's so, so sensitive and it's so easily injured. If you want someone to get a, 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 a speck out of your, th- what are you gonna say? Do you want them to be calm? You want them to be patient. You want them to be relaxed and to take their time and to be gentle. You want them to say, it's going to be okay. I've, I, I've, I've done this before. I've had this same problem and I know how to take care of it. And they kind of gently open your eye, lids open, and, and they, they reach down and just with a, a very slight pressure, move that out of your eyeball, letting go, letting you blink and rehydrate. You're like, oh, I feel so much better. Right? That's what you want. Do the same thing with someone's sin. You don't don't come at them blasting both barrels. You don't come with your Bible thumping them on the head. You are a rotten sinner going to hell. Let's take care of this thing. Don't take the last Twinkie again. That's, That's not what we do. When there is sin serious enough to deal with, first of all, we pray about it. We pray for our own hearts. We pray for God to be at work because it's only God that that convicts us of our sin and leads us out of it. And then we're gentle, we're kind, we're patient with them. We We let them know we are for you. We're not against you. The whole reason why I'm even bringing this up is because I love you. And I know maybe I've even struggled with this. I've definitely struggled with sin. I know what God wants for us, and that is godliness. So let me come alongside you and help you deal with this sin. Finally, as we seek to respond to sin as God's people... We must guard our hearts. Jesus says, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Verse 43 begins with the word for... That's the introduction of a purpose statement. In other words, he's telling you, this is the reason behind these truths about sin. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Jesus again lays... An axe to the root of one of culture's most popular held beliefs, namely that people are basically good. People are basically good. That, when we, when we believe that, it leads to all kinds of problems, not least of which making excuses for sin. We see people all the time making all kinds of terrible choices and we just blow it off because we say, well, but they're really basically good. So, so we see, uh, we we see, we see husbands or wives that are completely unloving towards their spouse. Uh, the, 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 they're complete losers, barely able to find their pants in the morning. But what does the other spouse always say? Oh, but but he—they're really a great person deep down, really? Because it looked like a pretty big jerk to me. They don't look like a great person. We see kids running crazy, uncontrollable, unwilling to obey or respect parents, and what do they say? You know, in their heart, they're just really, really good kids. Really, really? I think that down in their heart, they're sinners. I think that's what the Bible teaches. They're not nice. They're not good. You don't get bad apples off a good, healthy tree. You don't get thorns off a fig tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad heart. Sin comes from within. So one of the most terrifying verses in all the Bible is Jeremiah 17.9. I quote it often. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What kind of heart are hearts? That's us. That means apart from God, we have no hope for change. Sin exists within the human heart and gives evidence through human actions. Jesus is warning, again, his disciples, there's a principle there that says you can look at other people and make some kind of determination about about how to approach them. But again, he's focused on us and he's saying, you need to make a determination, what kind of heart do you have? What kind of fruit is being produced in your life? What kind of treasure do you have? As my disciples, do you have the heart that you were born with or do you have a different heart? The idea of a heart transplant has always fascinated me. You've got this muscle that is arguably uh, the most important muscle in your body, assuming the brain is not a muscle, an organ. I don't know. I'll ask my wife later, and she'll tell me right or wrong as the nurse. But when it's working well, we don't think about it. Every day, moment by moment, hour by hour, year by year, lub-dub, 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 lub-dub. It just keeps cranking on, and it's fine. But the minute something happens... The minute we've got that stabbing pain, the minute we go in for a routine check and they say you gotta go to the hospital right now, there's a problem, suddenly panic sets in and you're worried about this most vital of muscles, this heart. When it when it goes really bad and they say we've got to get that thing out and we've got to get you a new one. Can you ever I mean can you imagine what that must be like to know you've got a completely different heart? one that does not, has not grown organically with the rest of your body, but they've literally taken your old one out and thrown it in the trash, and they've put a new one in and hooked it all up and, and gave it a little shock to get it going, and it's, it's pumping blood through your body again like it should, oxygenating your cells and your lungs. It's, it's frankly amazing. But it's such a good picture of what God needs to do as well. Because even when it feels like it's working great, our hearts are defective And all they're going to produce is sin. All they're going to produce is bad fruit. And we can't do anything about it. We need a savior to come outside of us, to do spiritual surgery, to get rid of that old heart that's going to produce nothing but sin and give us a new heart that's going to produce righteousness, that's going not to want to rebel and sin all the time, but is going to want to love and to serve God. That's what we need. Only God can give it. And God says, this is what salvation is like. It is a like a new heart, not one of stone, but one of flesh. One that does not produce uh, wickedness, but righteousness. And it only comes to us when we trust in Jesus. When we look to him as the one and only savior that can rescue us from our life of sin, that can bring life from the dead and give us the status as children of the one true God. Once you have a new heart, you should guard it. You should protect it from sin. How do I do that, you ask? Well, I'll simply say this. Remember the song you probably learned as a child. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little hands what you do. Oh, be careful little mouth what you say. Oh, be careful little feet where you go. If you want to guard your heart, You're going to guard every part of your life. You're going to guard what comes into your mind through your eyes and through your hands. You're going to guard where your feet take you and where your your heart starts to love and have affections. If you find yourself loving something that you know is not going to be good for you, you get rid of that thing. It might be good. It It might be a perfectly good thing, but you love it too much, you get rid of it. Whatever it is. In a word, you look for sin and temptation and you avoid it. You you don't, you don't play the spiritual macho card. I'm okay for this. I can handle this. If you feel that draw, you run. You run for your life. You don't worry about look, being sentimental or looking culturally savvy or being cool. You run for your life. So all your friends say, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's not sinful. You say, I can't do it. Have fun, guys. I'll see you later. Run for your life. Jesus says, this is how my people respond to sin. We remember God's mercy. We rethink our attitude. We follow our Savior. We deal with sin and we guard our heart. May we do that today and until Christ comes. Father, we are thankful for Jesus' words, which are sometimes not easy, but sting because we are sinners. We are so easily swayed in our affections to love and to follow and to trust things other than you. And for that, God, we confess that we are sinful and we sin in these ways. But, God, we also know that through Christ we not only have forgiveness, that we have a new power at work in our life, your very Spirit. God, may we seek to cultivate that new heart, that new love for you. May we guard ourselves and run from sin. And, God, when we encounter sin in others, may we remember the full measure of mercy that we have received from you that we may be merciful to them. God, in this way, may we live as Jesus' disciples in a way that exalts him and honors him as our Lord and Savior. Amen.